Yes. Uh, morning, Dr. Payne. Morning. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. And we're seeing some of your slides coming up. That's perfect. Before we get to that, um, can I uh, swear you in, um, which we've been doing with the various witnesses. So uh, do you swear that the evidence you give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Thank you. Um, and you're joining us from Alberta, I believe, right? That's correct. I'm in Calgary. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've got a, a summary of my um, academic background up here on the right. Um, I am a child neurologist, uh, Canadian trained, um, worked uh, in the States as well at Mayo Clinic for six years before being recruited back to the Children's Hospital uh, to help build a neuroinflammatory uh, program, um, as well as my epilepsy surgery and ICU-EG uh, experience. We returned, we being my family, I have three small children as well, eight, six, and four, uh, moved back to Calgary from Rochester, Minnesota, a month before the pandemic started. Uh, it says there that you were a pediatric neurologist at the Mayo Clinic for six years before you came back? That's correct. What did that involve? Yeah, that, that was a, an outstanding experience. There's a, a, not a better healthcare delivery model system in the world, in my opinion, than Mayo Clinic. Um, I had the, uh, the ability to just focus almost entirely on epilepsy, um, both adult and pediatric. And I was very involved in helping to develop and run their ICU EG monitoring program. So we hooked patients up who are critically ill in the ICU to EG to look for seizures and prognosticate outcomes. Um, and so, you know, my youngest two are actually born in the States. They're American. Um, we had a really, really good experience um, and, and really only decided to move home to Canada when um, when University of Calgary and Alberta Children's Hospital um, came soliciting once again, um, you know, about six months or a year before I came to sort of say that they had a, an open job coming up and um, they wanted to write that job uh, based on my credentials, which they did. And uh, as a result of, you know, a three-year startup package that was very generous uh, with, uh, with funding as well as, you know, protected research time, which was going to be 50% of my time, um, you know, we made the decision to move the family at that, at that moment. And that was in the uh, spring of 2020? That was in February 2020. February. Okay. All right. So what happened next from your perspective? Well, I mean, with respect to the COVID stuff, um, I guess, you know, I, I have a slide here on ethics, um, but um, really where I got involved with this was a letter that I wrote on September 15th, 2021 uh, to the college, to the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Alberta, uh, because they were openly contemplating whether or not to tie uh, our medical licenses in the province uh, to um, the COVID vaccination. Um, and at that same time, Alberta Health Services, who was my employer, um, for one of the many ways, University of Calgary as well, uh, had made the decision late August that they were going to implement a COVID-19 vaccine policy. And um, that if you uh, were not uh, going to capitulate, um, that you were going to get locked out and, and lose your job. So I wrote a letter, um, you know, 18 pages with about 80 references, every bullet point backed by a fact, a data point. Um, and, uh, that letter ended up, um, 
going viral, I guess. I put a copy of it, as you can see up here on the JCCF website, uh, because uh, people were, were manipulating versions of it when it first got out. Um, Sorry, so I, what's I JCCF? In one spot. Apologies. JCCF is the Justice Center for oh. Constitutional Freedoms. Right. So they were one of the only lawyers or law firms that were willing to, to talk to someone like myself, uh, who was, you know, looking to fight back against these, what I felt to be very unconstitutional mandates. Uh, but more than that, the science at, at the time in the fall was incontrovertible. I mean, we knew that these things didn't stop transmission. Um, we had all these long-term concerns. They, they, they failed to, to show us the biodistribution data about where this thing goes when it travels in the body. There are a lot of concerns and we also knew who was at risk. And I know as somebody who is a healthy 40 uh, year old, uh, I, I was not in that high risk category. So um, we, we wrote this letter and the, it, these are the main bullet points that I argued in that letter. And then a few weeks later, I, I got onto a, a podcast, a Sean Newman podcast, um, mainly because one, this version of the letter was never meant to be distributed. I was going to, this was lit written specifically to 15, you know, physicians on the council of the college. Um, and I felt that there was maybe, you know, it was a little bit too complicated for, for, for layman interpretation. So I got on the podcast to explain it. And I also wanted to explain to my colleagues where my head was at, <laughs> why, uh, all of a sudden someone who, who they had gone to know for a very long time, because I trained here, right. For eight years, they knew they were getting somebody who cared a lot about their patients and was going to work hard. Uh, so I tried to explain to them where I was coming from. Uh, but very quickly after this, um, um, things, things went sideways. Um, I, you know, I've still not received, uh, a, a response from the college. So that letter that I wrote to college has, has never received a response. I sent it to the CEO of Alberta Health Services at the time, Dr. Verna Yu. Um, she forwarded it to Dr. Mark Joff. Joff is, Dr. Joff is now the chief medical officer of health, um, appointed by Dr. Sorry, appointed by Premier Smith. And he wrote back to me, thanking me for my letter, uh, and concerns that they were going to continue to go with the international community and, and suggested that if I had concerns about the mRNA vaccines that I consider taking one of the DNA vector vaccines like the AstraZeneca. Uh, and of course, the AstraZeneca got removed from the shelves a few months later because of an increased incidence of clots and bleeding. Um, but after my letter uh, sort of went around, there was another pediatrician at the Children's who wrote a letter as well. Um, and so uh, this article in the Calgary Herald um, was sort of slandering what we had talked about, misrepresenting, of course, what we talked about. Um, and, and one of their, their go-to individuals um, for misinformation here in Canada is an individual by the name of Timothy Caulfield, who um, just won the Governor General's Award for uh, fighting COVID misinformation. As a matter of fact, he's also a member of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. And so he made this comment that, you know, calling into question the safety and efficacy of the vaccine was like denying the pull of gravity. Uh, but since that time, you know, experts such as uh, Byron Bridal, Dr. Byron Bridal, as well as Dr. Stephen Pellick um, have tried to sit down and just have a discussion about the science. Um, and, and this article, these articles here speak to Dr. Uh, to, to, to those efforts to try to have a debate and discussion. Uh, but Mr. Caulfield, who is, um, uh, you know, apparently an expert on COVID misinformation, uh, refuses to sit down, you know, even two or three years out um, on this, which I think tells tells us quite quite a bit. And uh, as a result, you know, moving forward, uh, AHS, you know, moved to take immediate action. So these are the actual, you know, cups cut, cut that was from the letters. They took immediate action on uh, December 13th at 12 o'clock. They let us know that that deadline got pushed back a few times, but 
I think at 11 p.m. that night, we got the email that we were officially being locked out the next the next morning. Uh, and then um, the very next morning, at ten, uh, December 14th at 8 a.m., um, the college sent in two investigators to go through my records in front of my colleagues um, looking for vaccine exemption letters. They had, uh, I guess, received a complaint or had concern that I might be writing vaccine exemption letters. Um, so uh, as you can see here, they went through uh, letters from September on. They went through 82 patient records. They found a handful of vaccine exemption letters that I had written for select patients. Uh, and they ended up concluding that um, that these were well documented and valid and that there was, as they say, uh, insufficient evidence found to suggest that I wasn't compliant. Uh, and at the time, what, you know, the college was telling physicians, I've got this on video, uh, you know, that if, if you write a vaccine exemption, the only exemption that you can write is if somebody has an, uh, an allergic reaction or myocarditis after the first. There was no exemptions before the first. However, if you went to their website, there were exceptional circumstances. You had to document them properly. So that's what I did. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's why everybody had such hard times getting these letters. And, and the reality was, even once the letters were written, um, I had colleagues here who had two exemption letters from physicians, uh, and they were still fired from AHS. Um, on January 6th, um, the University of Calgary uh, sent me a letter stating that um, they were not going to renew my contract. I had a signed three-year letter of offer, including three years of startup funding um, for the 50%, 45% protected research time. And they specifically said in the letter, and you can see that in quotes, that uh, uh, this that my removed from my education activities by the coming School of Medicine due to non-compliance with the university's Calgary vaccination directive. Um, and, you know, so that was January 6th. And then February 28th, they dropped the policy. So I was, I was officially non-compliant with the University of Calgary's uh, policy for two months. Uh, and then Alberta Health Services dropped the mandate in July. But I was allowed back to the hospital, you know, six weeks after they locked me out. Um, because at that point, they finally decided that they were going to allow um, testing. And so before I went to the hospital every day, uh, I had to, get a, had to go to the pharmacy, pay for a test so I could go into work. Uh, fortunately, I, I was right guessing that was going to be very temporary, uh, and, and that lasted just a few months, and I was back without, without testing. What's gone on since that time was, uh, as a result of removing my you know, quite lucrative fee-for-service, sorry, my uh, salary contract, they've allowed me to continue uh, on a fee-for-service basis in the hospital while continuing to diminish my clinical time. I've started uh, uh, to see patients in the community, um, but just before Christmas, I uh, was made aware that they were advertising for the job that they had removed from me. Um, and so I decided to put my name back in the application. And I just found out a couple of weeks ago that they're not, they're not going to consider my application to move forward with that application. They're going to interview four other individuals, all excellent. I know three of the four of them, you know, three of them are still in fellowship training. So they don't, they're not even consultants. Um, and the other one is, is a general neurologist. So, you know, not the still the same skill level, um, or research background, um, or, uh, you know, or, or experience. And I still have two complaints against being outstanding with the college, uh, with respect to misinformation. One is related to the original letter itself. Uh, the one that I wrote to the, the council. <laughs> <laughs> I've never received a response for. Uh, they have informed me uh, a year and a half out that uh, they have hired an expert third opinion. So they can't find, uh, I guess, anything scientifically wrong. So they've asked for a third uh, uh, opinion. And then this, uh, from what I understand um, from another other doctors in Alberta who have gone through this with the college already, first of all, uh, getting an outside contractor to, to look into this is very abnormal for them. Um, but there's a company that they've hired for a couple of physicians, and it's a it's a group of XRCMP officers from 
who are now investigating whether or not I spread scientific misinformation. And I wrote a letter to my college seeking discussion and debate about something I was very concerned about safety-wise. Uh, the other complaint came from a colleague myself, uh, a colleague at my hospital who I've known for a very long time, someone um, who um, showed the uh, intestinal fortitude and, and the character of courage to uh, just write the complaint behind my back and never actually uh, <laughs> approach me with, with any of these concerns. I just all of a sudden have a complaint from them. Um, so that one's still open um, for, for misinformation as well. Um, so if I can just stop you there and yeah, sum please. summarize where we're at. You were effectively recruited by the Alberta health official officials um, because of your expertise, recruited away from a job you loved at the Mayo Clinic, and then were promptly let go because for a period of six to eight weeks, you were not in compliance with the vaccine mandate. Is that, is that it? That is correct. Okay. Can, you can continue. So I, I thought at this point, I, I, when I, uh, I would sort of focus on the four main points of my letter, um, just showing just, you know, very briefly, and I, I got a lot of slides, but I'm going to go through them, not to explain everything, but people can take screenshots and it's going to be there for posterity. But, you know, the first point was that September 1st, so 15 days before my letter, the CDC decided to change the definition of a vaccine because these genetic jabs were not vaccines. And so they had to change the definition. They weren't preventing disease. They weren't providing immunity. So they changed it to providing some temporary protection. We also knew at that time, if you looked at, this is CDC data here, I mean, you know, age was an incredible predictor of who was going to get injured. So, you know, here, here I am with in the 20 to 49-year-old group, and, and I've got a 99.98% chance of survival. We knew this within three months before it even sort of arrived on our shores uh, officially. And, um, you know, if you look at the Canadian data, this is on the Canadian public available data. You can see down here, this is age and this is the number of cases of COVID over time. Uh, sorry, deaths with or from COVID. So keep in mind that at least 50% of these are going to be uh, with and not, they didn't actually die from COVID. This has been acknowledged by multiple public health officials many times. But as of May 13th, 2022, we had 24,000, um, sorry, there were a total of 40,000 deaths in Canada in three years. And half of those are, are with and not from. So we've had 20,000 deaths in Canada in three years from COVID. And 97.1% of those have occurred in those over 50. If you look at the breakdown in Alberta, just focus here on, on the summary here. Albertans over 50-year-old have compromised 70% of all COVID-related hospitalizations, 70% of all COVID-related ICU admissions, and 96% of all COVID-related deaths. If you look at it divided by pediatric data, uh, data we fortunately, this thing has not been uh, uh, affecting kids. Um, we didn't have any deaths in Alberta until the fall of 2021. So this was a full year and a bit after the pandemic, just as the vaccines were starting to roll out. We have five cases of death. I know three of them died for sure with and not from COVID. Uh, I don't know all five of them, but this is the total number. This is the number of kids that got hospitalized out of all of this uh, total in the ICU and, and five deaths. Uh, and, and one of those, the very first deaths, as a matter of fact, um, our, our former chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, got on and held a press conference to, to indicate to families that we had just lost the first child from COVID um, and then promptly sort of encouraging families. That was right at the time they were about to push the vaccines in the 5 to 11-year-olds um, and then had to retract because a family member pointed out that the, the uh, teenage boy had been suffering from uh, stage 4 brain cancer and had died you know, with and not from COVID. 
So she apologized and retracted that. And this is not surprising. So we know this is October 26, 2021, right at the time that my letter went out. This was Pfizer's own modeling data that they submitted to the FDA. And they predicted that if you vaccinate 1 million children, so two shots fully vaccinated, you're going to save maybe one life. Uh, but you're going to cause somewhere between 34 and 17 cases of excess myocarditis in the ICU. And we know that, you know, probably 15 to 20, maybe up to 50%, depending on the study, of people who have ICU myocarditis die within five years. So based on this, their own modeling, before this thing rolled out in kids, before the Canadian government approved this, this table showed you that they were going to kill more children because of ICU myocarditis than save from the vaccine. And this doesn't include any of the other side effects. We were told, as you guys uh, all remember, We, we can't hear. Uh, oh, you guys can't hear that. We can't can hear that um, clip from uh, Ms. Wolensky. Okay. So um, that's. Uh, so the, she. The, that clip the gist of it is that, that we were told that the vaccine would prevent you from getting COVID. Yes? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'll have to figure this out because I've got other, other short videos too. But she was telling us that you're not going to get it. You're gonna, if you get it, you're not going to spread it to other people. Um, and then we had, and hopefully, um, let's see if you guys are, actually, if I just do um, this, you guys may be able to hear this now. No, that's not going to work. Um, so this was Fauci saying the same thing, and these are all the people that said that. But the, the key to um, what was taking place here was that in the official trials that were done, and they came back and telling us that this was, you know, 95% um, effective or um, or 100% effective in the, in the teenagers, uh, what they were providing was the uh, the relative risk, and they were not providing us with the absolute risk. And the absolute risk from these trials actually showed that you know, if you had a 100% chance of getting COVID, these things reduced it by 1%. So the number needed to vaccinate based on these numbers show that you needed to vaccinate like 125 people or 200 people just to save one, one case, prevent one case. So there was no chance that vaccinating everybody was ever going to solve this endemic virus. Uh, and this is a, a quote from a, a document from the FDA itself saying that it is actually, you know, unprofessional to just provide the relative risk and not provide the absolute risk. Um, this is a, a document that was pushed around in Canada, including the Children's Hospital that I work at, uh, back in June in 2021, uh, stating here, you know, that the vaccine was 100% safe and effective based on the relative risk in those, uh, in those children. But they also suggested that we had, you know, no concerns for long-term risks. Uh, and, and I was able to, uh, confirm via email with the pediatric infectious disease doctor who is helping push these things around. That at the time that they were sending this and saying this to families, uh, that they only had eight weeks uh, long-term data in adults. They didn't have, they didn't even have eight weeks of kids at that point. Uh, the, the major integrity issues with respect to the Pfizer original trials as well. There's a whistleblower um, who is currently suing them, uh, and uh, it's incredible what what they were getting away with. Um, hopefully, you guys were able to hear. You guys can't hear that, can you? No, we can't. Okay, so th that's uh, Bill um, telling us that, that these vaccines are not good at infection blocking and preventing the disease. 
so he, uh, uh, right after making this statement, sold off a whole bunch of his Moderna shares with a pretty good upside to them. Um, you know, here is the Alberta public health data, uh, and this is the kind of figure that I have in some of my uh, expert opinions that are before the court um, with respect to COVID. But this is the Alberta over data over time COVID cases. Two doses is in the green, three doses is in the red, one dose blue. And so what you can see, you know, May 2021, September 21, here we are into Omicron, right during the truckers uh, in Ottawa in January uh, of 2022. Uh, and if you had had two doses, you were twice as likely to get Omicron. And that is relative to 100,000. So this is not the absolute numbers. This is this is relative numbers. Um, this continued. And, and you can see here as of March 13th, the three doses were most likely to be getting COVID uh, by the Alberta data. And that, it was at this time that Alberta took this number off the website. Now, certainly there is more uptake on the third shot among elderly people. So that for sure is a, you know, a part, part of, uh, of, of this, but it does not account for all of it. Here's the Ontario data, same thing, fully vaccinated, uh, absolute risk at right around the January 22, more likely to get COVID if you had two shots. Relative to vaccine status per 100,000, the double vax were more likely to get Omicron last Christmas. This is the Alberta, this is for U.S. data, uh, looking specifically against uh, Omicron coming out this fall. Zero percent effectiveness is here. And you can see that over time across all age groups, this became negative effectiveness over time. This was a prospective study just done at the Cleveland Clinic in the fall where they looked at the bivalent effectiveness in 50,000 of their own healthcare workers. Note that they didn't even force their healthcare workers to all take the shot because they had some people with zero doses to, to study. Um, but what this showed very effectively was a dose response curve. The most likely person to get COVID Omicron this last fall was four doses, uh, then three doses, then two doses, then one dose, then zero dose. Um, this this video, uh, I think many people have, have seen this one as well, um, but a, a, an EU uh, parliament uh, um, uh asking a Pfizer executive if, um, you know, they had had any evidence that the vaccine stopped transmission before they rolled this out, which I think most people thought that, of course, they have evidence that this happened. She chuckles and said, no, we didn't have any evidence to show that this stopped transmission. We had to move at the speed of silence, science, whatever that is. So right around that time, you know, so then, you know, the, the, the naysayers here will say, well, it still does something against serious illness and disease. But in March 2022, um, this was the data available publicly in the UK and, and nine out of 10 COVID deaths were in the fully vaccinated. So UK and, and Israel were three to four months ahead of us on this. So you could just look to see what was going on there to predict what was coming in Canada, which is why when I wrote my letter in the fall, uh, I, I already had Israeli data that showed that two doses compromised 60% of the ICU emissions in September. So there was no way even against serious illness and death that this was going to do what they were saying it was going to do. Here's BC data showing the same thing. You know, 93% of the COVID-related deaths in March were, were in the vaccinated. Um, 85%, 82% of hospitalizations. Um, and this is despite the fact that only 50% of people in BC had taken three shots. So proportionally speaking, the triple vax are more likely to die from COVID. That's in BC. This is the Alberta data, same thing. Three doses, 50% likely, uh, this is hospitalizations. So you can see 81% of the hospitalizations were in, the, were in the vaccinated. And then in deaths, this is July 4th, 2022. Um, we had 73% of the deaths in Alberta occurred in those who were with two or more shots. 
And this data uh, is important, you know, especially in the context that we only had 39% uptake on three shots. So this is right here at the Omicron uh, when it came out at Christmas time in 2022. And right when everybody who had taken two and three shots got COVID anyways, uh, a lot of them decided that they weren't going to take three shots. So we haven't gone past 40% uptake. It's plateaued since January of 2022. And in response to those numbers, um, uh, AHS has taken, uh, the Alberta government has taken the uh, cases by vaccine outcome, death, hospitalization, and, and cases itself. You can no longer get that anywhere in Canada, uh, basically. Uh, this is Paul Offit, uh, and, and, and he's a member of the FDA that consistently, he's a pediatric infectious disease, that consistently voted yes for the vaccines. And he's saying that he would have voted hell no if he could have said hell no instead of just no to the Omicron boosters because of the complete lack of data associated with that. Uh, um, and then, you know, what we've seen here in the last, you know, six months is that because of the efficacy data uh, and lack thereof, multiple jurisdictions are taking this from their shelves. So, you know, France just um, removed this. Denmark um, uh, stopped recommending these back in March, <laughs> uh, a long, long time ago, as, uh, sorry, September 2022. Um, England, uh, here's Florida, uh, removing these from those uh, under the age of 40. Um, here is the Danish health minister saying it was a mistake to recommend COVID-19 vaccines for children. Here is a health official from Quebec recently stating that they're not going to recommend boosters only for the vulnerable, specifically drawing attention to the fact that natural acquired immunity with respect to COVID actually exists. And those who have had it, given that about 95% probably of us, based on serology studies, have had it, there's no reason to boost everybody with it. Uh, and then just this week, the World Health Organization, <laughs> of all people, is now no longer recommending this for for uh, for those who are not not at risk. Um, you know this this clip. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's really too bad the voicing, but uh, is not working here. But this is Anthony Fauci uh, uh, years and years ago being asked specifically on camera uh, about a woman who just got influenza, just got the flu, and whether or not the person who just got the flu should also get vaccinated against the flu. And he says, if she has really had the flu, then she does not need to be vaccinated. The best vaccine is in fact being infected with the virus. So that was pre-COVID. That was the, the brain on <laughs> pre-COVID. And then all of a sudden, um, right as these vaccines were coming in, we know by a serology uh, by the summer 2022, that probably, sorry, summer 2021, that probably 50% of the population had, had been exposed to COVID. So the idea that you would expose 50% of your population to an experimental genetic jab if they had protection from already getting it didn't make any sense. So they had to tarnish that long-held medical established fact that, yeah, 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years of, of, of human existence, um, and, and we're here because of our immune systems. Dr. Paul uh, Alexander uh, he put together 160 research studies over the last few years showing a superiority of, of natural acquired immunity post-COVID infection to the vaccine. Uh, and here is a recent paper just came out uh, earlier this uh, in February, and I'm not going to go through, but basically it was a meta-analysis of all the best data. And, and as a result, showing for sure that there is better robust um, protection, even if you get reinfected, uh, like with Omicron, if you were got, say, you know, the original, uh, you know, the original virus or alpha or something like that, you are protected against serious illness uh, still with these numbers. And, and that led to actually the mainstream picking this up recently. So, you know, what was actually interesting about this study was actually was funded by the Gates Foundation. So they have no, they really have to acknowledge this now for that to come out that way. But uh, nonetheless, you know, here is three years late, the Lancet recognizes natural immunity. And this is one of the points that I'm apparently spreading misinformation for. And I wrote that letter in September. Uh, and here's the New York Post stating the same thing. 
This, uh, these are two short videos talking about vaccine-induced enhancement. The idea that being vaccinated against certain viruses uh, with subsequent exposure to that virus, you can get increased infection or you can get enhanced infection as a result of that. And it's well known. So I had written about this because we had, you know, about a dozen papers where, where animal models had gotten respiratory viruses and subsequent to getting the vaccine, subsequent exposures, the animals all died due to antibody dependent enhancement. And this is Dr. Fauci explaining exactly that, that there is, you know, this issue with vaccine induced enhancement. The FDA knew that it was a risk with the COVID viruses, the COVID vaccines rather. And so they, they were watching for it apparently, but they haven't really been documenting any of this. And we can get this through antibody dependent enhancement, immune imprinting, uh, where you sort of, you know, you, 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 um, your, your immune system gets, uh, gets biased towards the first, uh, version of what it sees. And then it can get exhausted by all these subsequent boosters. And Peter Hotez has been one of the most vocal pro COVID vaccine people, uh, on CNN everywhere. Uh, but this is a testimony from him. This is really remarkable testimony, as a matter of fact, back in March 2020. Um, and, and he himself had done vaccine research with the coronavirus and had found that vaccine induced enhancement was an issue. Uh, and he specifically talks about an RSV vaccine where children died as a result of vaccine induced enhancement. Um, and so it is an absolute concern. It was a concern. Everybody knew that it was a concern. And if, if you, uh, you know, you look across here now, we've got clear evidence in the peer reviewed literature that that has taken a place. The antibody dependent enhancement has happened with Omicron, that the antibodies that are being generated are not neutralizing and meaning not canceling the virus itself. Um, we knew this uh, at the time I wrote my letter. This is the paper with respect to the Delta variant that was at present in the fall 2021, uh, again, showing that there is infection enhancing antibodies that's been detected. Um, and, you know, this is one of the things that I know this was quoted as well, but look at the date that this was submitted, November 2019. Um, so pre uh, uh, this rolling into our shores, uh, as far as um, we've been led to believe, although, you know, now we've, it's been even recognized by the former CDC uh, director and, and in peer reviewed literature that the virus was in circulation in the fall for sure in, in, in Europe. Uh, but anyways, here is, and this is the woman here, Zheng Li Shi, who's colloquially known as the bat lady. But uh, in their lab, they actually, uh, they induced enhancement of coronaviruses. <laughs> so before this thing got out, infected everybody, there were people playing with antibody-dependent enhancement of the coronavirus itself. And we know, you know, now it's widely acknowledged, uh, you know, what was previously conspiracy theory with respect to this thing having been generated in the lab. Now I think everybody is, you know, acknowledged that it is, uh, it was definitely created. Um, you know, the COVID genetic jobs and distribution by it's a huge issue because there isn't a single drug that we get that I can't look up what happens to it in your body, how long it takes for that thing to get metabolized, what get what where it gets metabolized. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, that was not present with these vaccines, these genetic jabs. And we knew that they were being housed in a fat ball, the mRNA ones were. And so, you know, because of that, you, I, my thought was that this could get everywhere. We were specifically told that this produces a spike protein, but that that spike protein gets tethered, tethered to a cell membrane and as a result can't circulate in the body and then gets, to, you know, recognized, destroyed. You know, you, you build up an immune response and then it's gone. Now the Canadian government is recognizing on their website, that was a conspiracy to suggest it could circulate, you know, in the fall when I wrote this. But now the Canadian website is now acknowledging that this can, can, can exist for days to weeks. It can actually exist for many, many months. There's evidence that it can even exist beyond a year. Um, and, you know, this point about this does not get into the cell nucleus and whatever, um, you know, that may not be totally true. You know, we've got this paper uh, by Alden and all. In a cell model of uh, HUH7, which is a cancer um, 
a liver cancer cell model showing that it activated a reverse transcriptase, meaning the mRNA became DNA, and then they found the spike protein inside the cell nucleus. So, you know, we need to know more about this, but this idea that this doesn't get in and it's been debunked, that's also nonsense. Um, this was the only data that I had in September that was, you know, really, uh, this was obtained through access to information, and this was in rats. And we knew uh, that very quickly, 0.25 hours, one hour, 48 hours, that this circulated everywhere. Um, it was in uh, brain, eyes, heart, kidneys, reproductive organs. So that was back uh, Japanese Pfizer data. Uh, and we've also got the data um, that was submitted to Australian authorities from Pfizer um, showing, uh, you know, once again, this also gets into the bone marrow. I mean, it goes all over the place uh, and the uptake in the reproductive organs, uh, as well as the brain. Um, you know, it's, it's very, very important. Now, it's also been found in the breast milk. So, you know, whether that's meaningful or not, um, they, you know, they, they fact check this and denigrate it, but the reality is they're finding it in people's uh, breast milk. So uh, to suggest that this thing doesn't travel uh, is, is, would be misinformation itself right now. Another study showing that it circulates for at least 15 days. Uh, here's a, here's an adult uh, who uh, received, uh, who got the vaccine uh, and then developed an encephalitis and status epilepticus. And they found the spike protein, not the virus and envelope protein, but just the spike protein in the cerebral spinal fluid. So it has the ability to get into the spinal fluid. Uh, and it can get in and affect myocarditis. So, you know, here, are, here it is where, you know, patients who have clinically evident myocarditis are more likely to have detected spike protein in their body. Um, here's an autopsy series where, you know, patients who were, had undiagnosed myocarditis and all these patients dying in their sleep. Um, it's apparently rude to ask if they were vaccinated. Uh, having said that, we all know that myocarditis uh, and one of the presenting uh, symptoms for myocarditis can be death. Um, this has been, been identified on pathology. They found spike protein in the heart. And, you know, here's just the two studies I mentioned, one about the breast milk, but two, we also know that it can impair temporarily semen concentration and motile content. And they say temporarily because they only look for a couple of months and they stop looking. So we don't know how long that, that actually affects things. Uh, I'm just sort of wrapping up here, but getting into the, the severe side effects and death, um, you know, this was a, a tour by Dr. Hoff, Dr. Malthouse. Um, uh, these are all people who were injured by the vaccine uh, who showed up to this tour. So these are not rare. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is a uh, self-reporting system by physicians and patients in the U.S. and internationally, uh, it found uh, it's now got over uh, 2.5 million adverse events reported with respect to these vaccines, including 44,000 deaths. Uh, and this is likely an underrepresentation of at least a factor of 10 to 40. Um, here is all vaccine adverse event reporting system uh, over decades. So um, here is all vaccines all put together. And this is the adverse events. And then here's the COVID vaccine. So the COVID vaccine in the first 18 months uh, accumulated more vaccine adverse events in the reporting system than all vaccines put together in 40 years. Uh, and juxtapose that with, you know, previously these things being removed from the market after just, you know, 15 cases of, of a bowel obstruction. Um, the European Union has got a database as well. They've, they've documented 46,000 uh, associated deaths um, and 4.6 million injuries. Uh, the World Health Organization has got a database as well. This also shows the same thing. So they've got, uh, as of November 12, 2021, there were 2.5 million adverse events in the World Health Organization's VigiAccess database compared to under a million adverse events for all vaccines put together in 40 years. 
This is an interesting uh, uh, safety database that's housed by the CDC. And for whatever reason, the CDC went to court to try to prevent its release. It's supposed to be publicly available data. They prospectively uh, enroll patients getting vaccinated, and they're supposed to report what their symptoms are on a prospective basis over the next few days. And this system showed that, you know, 7.7% of everybody who took a shot, this is everybody, this is not just, you know, self-selection bias. Everybody who took a shot, regardless of symptoms, had to add this thing in. And almost 10% had to go get medical attention. And, and one out of four were missing work or school. And, and as I say, the CDC tried to hide this data. The CD, the FDA tried to hide Pfizer's data. This is three-month data that we have now by access to information. In the first three months of the vaccine rollout, this is before it came to Canada, um, they had already documented 1,223 associated deaths. Um, and the six-month Pfizer data, which if you haven't looked at the Canadian COVID Care Alliance's video, More Harm Than Good, I highly recommend it because it's extremely well done. But this is this is probably our best, sorry about my dog, but our best data um, at six months. It's actually the trial data. So they're actively followed to find the side effects. Uh, and they tried to hide this for six months. And when we we got access to it, we found that injuries short-term were injury are higher. And there are actually six more deaths in the vaccine arm at six months than there were in the placebo arm. Um, and so there has absolutely never been any any peer-reviewed, you know, any any quality uh, uh, phase three trial data showing that these things prevent serious illness and death. Even the original phase three trials were just looking at the presence of illness. Sorry, Dr. Payne, I just, we're yep. running out of time. I'm wondering if... I sure. can just stop you and turn things over to the commissioners and see if they have any questions, if you don't mind. No problem. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Payne, for your very nice overview of the COVID uh, vaccine science over the past three years. Uh, I'll have two questions. First question is, uh, knowing that the vaccine is not sterilizing the uh, propagation of the virus and also knowing that uh, coronavirus mutate is it your expert opinion that the mass vaccination was contributing to the extension of the wave of new variant as we saw over over the years also given the fact that when you look at countries where vaccination rate is fairly low, it seems that the COVID at subs the pandemic had subset much, much earlier than in other countries. Yeah, thanks for the question. There's no doubt in my mind that that's the case. And uh, it's not just my expert opinion on this. Uh, I was able to cite a paper from, you know, uh, uh, immunology and virology experts in the New England Journal of Medicine back in the fall of 2021. Where in that are, uh, you know, that a well-respected journal, they were warning about act aggressively vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic using a non-sterilizing vaccine that you were going to put evolutionary pressure on the virus to mutate, uh, into something that we weren't going to be able to deal with. Um, and so this was warned, um, by some very smart people like a year and two prior and the evidence as it came out showed this. And the antibody-dependent enhancement papers I showed you show specifically that there are facilitating or enhancing antibodies that are circulating with respect to the Delta and Omicron variants. So I don't think there's any doubt that that's happened. My other question is relating to a sort of confirmation in real world that the vaccine does or does not prevent hospitalization or death. 
uh, it seems that it's very challenging to get the data in any jurisdiction about the actual vaccine status of people that were hospitalized for COVID or died from COVID. Do you have any sort of uh, hope that this will happen somewhere some, sometime? Yeah, so you're right. And I, you know, given the limits, I, I thought I had a full hour to talk, so I'm sorry I, I went over. But the, 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 re, uh, uh, the reality with respect to the death data uh, is that, um, you know, th they were playing with the numbers in different ways, using time denominators uh, that, that reflected one year of, of acquisition when we didn't even have the vaccine for six months of those, putting all the deaths in the, in the, in the, in the unvaxxed category. There were ways that they manipulated it. But as I as I pointed out, by the time we got to the to Christmas 2022, last last year, every single provincial database, I only showed you a few, every single provincial database, and I only showed you a few of the studies, uh, but multiple countries all pointed out the same thing, that you were more likely to get Omicron if you had more shots. And, and, and this has continued to be the case over the last eight months, you know, with more studies like I showed, to the point where, you know, as, as you're suggesting, they, they've taken that data off, right? Um, because it, it's it's so terrible, um, and I think you know, frankly, uh, with, with the evidence that they're sitting on, it's it's beyond terrible. You know, there's a criminality to to sort of hiding this data. You're not providing informed consent anymore. Um, you know, do I have hope that we're going to see the? I, I think we have more than enough information already to pull these things off the shelves across the board. Um, you know, the any positive uh, um, benefit from serious illness and death was was temporary and it was against the earlier variants. Uh, that is, you know, completely flipped now. You're more likely to be sick if, with COVID if you've had more more shots. That's already the case. Um, and so I, I you know, uh, I, I understand why they they put that away. Um, but, but I don't I don't feel like we need need more. But what we do not absolutely need, you know, with respect to the long-term data, uh, is that um, you know, we need to be uh, counting the beans in terms of, you know, who's been vaccinated and gets gets ill and who doesn't um you know what there there recently just two weeks ago the german health minister who oversaw covid uh acknowledged that there was at least a one in ten thousand risk of serious adverse illness and and injury after the vaccine he knew this even when he said that these things were safe and effective he he, he acknowledged that he lied about that in order to avoid vaccine hesitancy but he also acknowledged that the injuries that they're seeing are not the same as those post-covid and people, I'm seeing these people in my clinic now as well. They're, they've got, a lot of them have got like 25% of the teams have got permanent injury from this. And it's a different injury. And uh, by not talking about it, we're not looking at, you know, one, uh, acknowledging people that are that are suffering, people who, who went along with what they were told to do. But we're not looking for solutions to try to help the people that have been injured. You know, I have colleagues who literally, even though the Canadian government has paid out for Guillain-Barre syndrome, still do not put the vaccine on their differential for Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, you know, despite that data. Um, so we absolutely need to be following this prospectively uh, to sort of figure out what's, what's going on. Uh, in terms of my hope for it, uh, I won't hold my breath. Dr. Payne, thank you very much for your testimony. Um, a lot of information you provided us with, and I sometimes find in these technical discussions that meaningful points are missed by folks like myself who aren't medically trained. But one, one item that you mentioned, and I wanted to ask you for a little clarification on is, you had one slide where you talked about the, the um, 
the vaccines and you said, I believe you said, that they had reported the efficacy in the 90, 95, 97, whatever it was, percent range. And you called that relative efficacy. You also talked about, um, um, uh, you compared it to another number, which I believe you called absolute efficacy. And I'm curious if you can explain to me or in the audience exactly what the difference between relative efficacy that was used in promoting it and the concept of absolute efficacy. Yeah, sure. So, um, so we're, we're talking specifically about the relative risk reduction about an intervention versus the absolute risk reduction from an intervention. So the relative risk in the trials, if you just, I'm just, I'll, 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 uh, I'll round the numbers in the original trials, but there were like 40,000 participants in the, in the original trials, 20,000 received placebo, 20,000 received vaccine. In the Pfizer data, the numbers were something like among those who received the shot and, and keep in mind, you're not fully vaccinated until you're two weeks post your second shot. And I've got data showing that you're actually increased risk of getting COVID before your two shots, but nonetheless, not saying that, that definition, they showed that there were about 183 patients in the placebo arm during that 40,000 patient trial who got COVID. Positive test, mild symptoms. There wasn't anybody in that 40,000 patient trial who ended up going to emerge even, let alone needed to be admitted to the hospital. So when they compared that to like, say there was about three or five patients in the VAX group who got it, they compare relative to that. You know, 183 in the vaccine arm, uh, sorry, in the placebo arm got the, got the virus despite, uh, got the virus, but only five in the vaccine arm did. So they, they compare those two and the relative number to 183 versus five, here you get that 95%. But if you actually look at it in terms of the trial itself, which was 40,000 people, and you look at it that way, well, then you get your absolute risk reduction, which is 1%, right? So, um, and, and this is a very common way that pharmaceutical companies are known to play with the numbers when they're advertising to us. And it's because we know that this is misrepresenting the actual numbers and the risk that people like the FDA here put in manuals that it's you know unprofessional uh, to, to not provide the absolute risk reduction. Once you have the absolute risk reduction number, you can calculate something called the number needed to vaccinate, which is how many people do I need to vaccinate in order to avoid one case of COVID? And based on these absolute risk numbers, you were looking at somewhere between 100 and 200 people to prevent one case for something that had already affected 50% of the population in the summer. So there was no chance that this was ever going to stop, or, uh, you know, lock things down, you know, or we had somebody under oath in our case against AHS. Um, one of their experts suggested we could just get everybody vaccinated and we'll stop the pandemic. It's a complete lie. And it's been shown to be completely not true as well. But it's because of these types of things. So they... they yeah. So that when they talked about then and they gave a relative number, an, an ordinary person like myself who's reading that, who feels that then I've only got a 3% chance or sorry, I've got a 97% protection is really being misled, I believe is what you're telling me. It's you're being enormously misled. And I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding. So, you know, we, we, you know, while all these people here on the left told you that there's no way that you were going to get it, you were not going to spread it to anybody else. And then when that proved wrong, they told you, well, you're not going to get seriously ill. And when that proved wrong, they just took the data down. Um, they, uh, the reality is it was only lowering your risk of getting the disease 
by 1%. You know, I, 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 I'm a, I, 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 I'm an engineer, so I think of things in, in, in hard terms. And if I think of this in a hard term and I'm trying to evaluate two cars driving down the road and they're, and they're driving side by side at 300 kilometers an hour, their relative speed is zero. So that if I give you the relative speed of those two cars driving side by side, at 300 kilometers an hour, you have no idea what risk they have and what speed they're actually driving. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a great analogy. That's exactly it. And they, you know, they purposely pumped that. I mean, I showed you the one page poster that, that was posted in the emergency department at our children's hospital and throughout Canada, where they were telling the 12 to 18 year olds that there was 100% effectiveness with this shot. When we already knew it wasn't 100% effective in the adults. So, you know, this has been um, misinformation from the start. And the, this, these absolute numbers that was available, I wrote that in my letter. This was this was this was clear to people who wanted to pay attention to it at that time. Doctor Payne, we heard from another um, witness in Truro, Nova Scotia, and that witness talked about um, the vaccine itself and the technology of the vaccine. They talked about many of the things you talked about about the the vaccine or the the spike protein showing up in different things and, and and penetrating the cells but they also talked about a study with regard to the um purity of the vaccines that were actually utilized and they talked about the fact that the vaccines were supposed to be injected in such a way that they never went into the vascular system or the or this the circulatory system and and what that other witness talked about was that they were supposed to aspirate on the on the injections and they stopped doing that so my question to you on that is are you aware of those other issues the the manufacturing issues the actual injection issues and do you have any comments with regard to that yeah i mean i actually that that's one of the i i think one of the, the things that blows us like wide open because if, you know, right now the vaccine companies um, have got immunity, you know, we're not even allowed to look at the, the, the contracts that they've signed with the countries. Um, however, if, if there was fraud involved, then, then they don't get immunity. So with respect to what you're saying, the production, you know, not only did they ramp this thing up fast, but they had to produce it in, in high quality, you know, substances quickly. And that didn't happen. And there's a huge amount of literature to show that. Um, but but just to, to you know just give you the basics on this thing, you know the, the the vaccine is supposed to carry the genetic information to produce the spike protein, um, and what they had to prove the companies is that it actually produced the spike protein, and it had to produce the spike protein at a certain length, uh, and you can measure how long proteins are in something called a Western blot, and and so you can see how these things are actually being produced. And there was uh, there were limits. You had to have at least 50% of what was being produced had to be like, you know, normal size spike protein. Um, but it looks, and I've looked into this pretty carefully, and I know, uh, and I, I used to do Western blots, you know, when I was a grad, uh, when I was actually back in high school, even I was doing Western blots. But it looks like it. Uh, they cut and paste the Western blots, Pfizer did. Uh, meaning that they, they, there's not actually any uh, proof that they're consistently able to provide to produce reliable spike protein, and 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 proof of that is in you know is in the vaccine adverse event reporting system that I suggested. So not only did people put in their adverse events, they also had to put in the the drug identification number, what the actual batch number was of their vaccine, and there are studies right now out there in the peer reviewed literature showing 
that there are some batches that were associated with much higher injury than others. You can go to a website called How Bad Was My Batch? Type in your 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 uh, your your batch and see. So some of those were much higher. It doesn't mean that they, you know, some of them were, were you know, maliciously far. I mean, my, my impression from what I understand from the people who know this manufacturing stuff the best is that, you know, it, a lot of people got lucky and got got vaccine that just wasn't wasn't potent um, as a result of the fact that you're, you're, they're not consistently generating enough spike protein. What you said about the injection part, and I'll leave it at that, is that, yeah, I mean, if you give this as a subcutaneous or a, like a rather an intermuscular injection, um, it should hopefully most of it does stay, you know, a large part of it stays in the arm. However, if if by some chance you get this into a vein, you get this into a, a, a blood vessel by by accident, um, you know, you you could be injecting this right into the vent, the venous system, um, and so that's why people pull back on the on the needle to make sure that they don't you know draw they, they make sure that they're you're, you're not blowing it into a vessel when you do that. Has that happened? You know, does that account for maybe why some people had really fast anaphylactic reactions or other things? Like maybe. Um, you know, most people would not have had that injected by mistake into their into their their vein. But the bigger issue is the is the quality of reproduction generated from this this genetic recipe for the spike protein, and and that quality doesn't seem to be there. And there's there's pretty convincing evidence that there's some fraud involved in terms of producing Western blocks that met the FDA standard to allow this to get into the U.S. as emergency use authorization um, that were that were in fact copy and pasted. Thank you, doctor. I have a thousand other questions for you, but uh, I can't uh, ask you a thousand other questions. <laughs> Dr. Payne, I know you didn't get to all of your slides. <clears throat> is there anything in your slides uh, that you didn't get to that is really important that you'd wanted to highlight or did we cover off most of it? Well, we got through everything almost. I guess what I, I was specifically asked to make some comments about masking. And if, if I can just say two words about masking, um, I would like to, um, sorry, as you go through all these uh, here, but um, in, in November, 2022, um, I wrote uh, an article for Brownstone called Time to Unmask the Truth with Dr. Paul Alexander. Um, and it, it's a short article, but there's like 60 references in it, all showing that there is not a single policy grade level data, randomized control trial meta-analysis to show that masks actually do anything to prevent transmission of influenza or COVID. Um, and so after I, I sent this copy of this letter, November 25th, to our chief medical officer and health authorities in Alberta at that time. I followed up with a letter in December because there was new evidence showing that, you know, once again, these masks don't work. Uh, and, and now we've got a, a meta-analysis that was in, in in the in the Cochrane review here, looking at all this, and, and they've tried to attack this. But you know, nonetheless, the, the the summary point that they can't state is misinformation is that there is zero policy grade data to support masking, uh, especially our children. And you know, here's Fauci talking about how masks don't work. Might might catch some big droplet if you you know, but uh, that's not there. And then you know, you've got someone like Dr. Kieran Moore in Ontario. Uh, who on video is telling parents that if their child, a two-year-old, wakes up sick in the house, they should put a mask on them. Um, and meanwhile, he's out um, at uh, partying on the top 50 most influential without masks at a time that he's telling everybody else. So the hypocrisy that we've seen has, has been has been difficult on the masking. Uh, it's been varied across the board about you know what these these masking rules are from one jurisdiction to the other. Uh, and as a result of the pressure he got, I think, from from being caught, uh, he ended up changing his tune. And now he he actually acknowledged that there can be negative effects of the masks themselves. And as a pediatric neurologist, what I want to say is, everybody, this is intrinsic. 
Kids need to look at your face when they're learning to speak. Um, they have to be able, they, you can all see them mimicking that as they're forming words. Uh, there's lots of studies to show that that's the case. And the CDC, for the first time in over 20 years, decreased how many words a child should know at a certain age. You know, we have, you're supposed to know so many words, you know, a couple of word sentences, a couple of words together by age two, so on and so forth. Kids were falling behind so much so as a result of what's gone on with the lockdowns and the masking uh, that first year that the CDC is now now allowing for kids to know much less words, six months, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, and so it, it, there's no doubt that these things can cause harm. Uh, you know, we know that these things get disgusting and kids have got their hands on these things all the time. Uh, and now we've got, you know, a, many, many policy grade studies all showing minimal to no effective masking. So it's time to move on. And, and when and if ever we get another pandemic around, the idea that we should mask again is nonsense. Dr. That was all I want to say about masking. <laughs> Thank you very much for your evidence. Thank you. Thank you.